Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Please turn to Galatians chapter 3. It's page number 973 if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. We're going to read the first 14 verses and then go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1 as soon as you are there. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy for us um, to not want to live by faith, uh, not just in terms of our salvation, but I'm talking about in, in our daily lives, to want to live by sight, to, to want to be able to see and, and touch and experience you. And, and I don't know that those desires are wrong, um, but I can say that oftentimes, at least in my own heart, those are not always in accordance with a life of faith it is very easy for me to want to live by what I can see. And we need to be reminded of the superiority of faith, and we are thankful for your word, which does this, that reminds us that our hope is not in the tangible. It's it's in you, ultimately. And so strengthen that in us today, Lord. Please help us to see and understand this idea from your word. Spirit, fill us with, with understanding. Open our minds, our hearts to receive, and make us more like Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, this will come as no shock to many of you, but I am a boring person. I know this about myself and am totally okay with it. It's not that I myself am bored. In fact, I'm not normally bored, but I am boring to a lot of other people. Uh, People will be like, so what do you like to do? And I'll be like, "Eh, I like, I don't know, to read the news. That's 
really all I like to do. I do it multiple times a day, especially local news, especially local business news for some reason. I really get intrigued by that. I'm very excited about the arena coming to Virginia Beach. I've been following that closely uh, for months now. I'm excited about this new transatlantic internet cable coming in here at Corporate Landing and the data park that's going to come with that and all that's coming uh, in the next year, I'm thinking, uh, with that whole development. The biomedical park, on and on. Uh, I digress. All of that's very interesting to me. I doubt it's interesting to many of you. It normally isn't. I'm not up to date on most television shows. I am not on Facebook or Twitter, so I don't know what's going on in the world of social media. I only loosely cheer for the Bears and Cubs and Blackhawks. My joke is if they happen to be in the championships and I find out about it, I'm a huge fan uh, at that point. <laughs> I, I do like playing racquetball, uh, but there's not much to talk about with that, especially with people who don't play racquetball, which is pretty much everyone I know. And uh, when it comes to hobbies, I have tried to have them in the past, but it's never quite worked out. For example, in seminary, and this is where all of this is going, if you're wondering, in seminary, I thought it would be really neat if I began collecting uh, biblical antiquities or artifacts. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, <laughs> this would be really cool, and there definitely was a uh, point in my past where I wanted to be North Carolina Pots and do whatever else came with that, but... That's not exactly what I had in mind. No, it all started, I've lost you all now, but thank you. You paid me to do that this week, by the way, just remember that. Uh, it all started uh, when I was in seminary. A guy came to our chapel, we used to have chapel every Thursday morning, a guy came to the chapel service one time, and he presented a gift to the seminary of a framed section of Torah scroll that was like, I don't know, a thousand years old, literally. It looked something like this. And so if you don't know how a, a scroll works, I mean, before the days of books, when there were pages that were bound together at the end, they, things were put in scrolls, long sections of either parchment or more often animal skin that was sewn together and then cut to shape, and you would write in columns, north to south, so to speak, and you would have to scroll left or right to get to wherever you're going. Imagine how hard that would be on a Sunday morning. If I'm like, turn to Galatians 3. Like, it would take forever, right? So we moved away from that and into this. But, but this is how Torah scrolls are. And when you hear that, you know, this guy gave the seminary this, like, thousand-year-old Torah scroll, you're like, wow, that's really cool sounding. It must have been really expensive. Actually, it, it really isn't. It's not that unusual at all. To understand why, let me ask you a seemingly unrelated question. What, what do you do? Don't answer this out loud, please. But what do you do with an old Bible that you no longer want or need? That's a tough question, isn't it? Because you've probably got some of these sitting around your house that you've had for years, like something you used in junior high umpteen years ago, and it's falling apart, pages are missing, the bonded leather cover is like flaking off, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. You can't throw it away, because that's just wrong. Do you burn it like you do an old flag? But then you're like, no, if I burn a Bible, I think I'm going to burn somewhere else myself. That can't be the right answer. Uh, my go-to solution, by the way, has been donation. I have given a number of Bibles to Goodwill and the Salvation Army in the belief that maybe they would get passed on to someone else, and if they don't, I don't know what happened. One time, I did recycle a Bible because it was falling apart and I couldn't donate it, but I felt really guilty, and I didn't know if that was right. I just didn't have another option. All that to say, this is a real problem, right, in the church today. We don't know what to do with our old Bibles. Well, the Jews didn't have this problem. They had come up with a, a quite ingenious solution called a Geniza. A Geniza was a tomb or a burial chamber for absolutely 
anything that had scripture written on it. So whether you were, you know, on Sunday you wrote something, or Saturday you wrote something down on a, your bulletin, or, you know, you've got a Torah scroll that's falling apart and is no longer usable for your time of synagogue worship, or you have something with pottery with, I mean, it could be anything. If it had reached a point where you could no longer use it, want it, whatever the case may be, you took it to the synagogue, and the rabbi would put it in the Geniza. The Geniza was a tomb. Almost every synagogue had one to this day. Most, many of them still do. And the idea was that it would just return to dust on its own as it sat there in the tomb. Well, there are many, many of these where, because of uh, their location, you know, the climate, the temperature, etc., the documents did not return to dust. In fact, they have been very, very well preserved over hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and these Genesis have become a source of great academic and economic interest over the past 50 to 100 years. The documents that aren't important for scholarly or historical reasons are often sold, either in part or in whole, to anyone who wants to buy one. Um, so, for example, look this up this week. Right now on eBay, you can buy a single strip, okay, just one column, a single strip of a 250-year-old Torah scroll on vellum. Vellum is animal skin, normally deer, but sometimes sheep, uh, from Morocco for about $25. So they're not very expensive, depending on some things. Or, if you want to go to the other end of the spectrum, if you've got a wad of money you're looking to, to spend somewhere, you can buy a complete Torah scroll. It is 400 years old. It is on parchment from Germany for about $60,000. So that's quite a spread, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that factor into the price of these. For example, how old is it? The older it is, the more valuable it is. Uh, where is it from? Certain areas are more uh, uh, compelling to uh, collectors and things. They want them from certain parts of the world. If you get something from Jerusalem or from Israel, my goodness, that's through the roof expensive. We'll get further away from there. Price goes down. Uh, what's it written on? Again, vellum is, is pretty cheap because vellum tends to, to uh, discolor over time. I'll show you an example of that in just a moment. If you can find something on parchment, parchment is like paper, old paper. It's more rare, therefore more expensive. How large or complete is it? And then finally, for just strips or sections, what passage of scripture does it contain? For example, if you want to buy Psalm 23, get ready to pay, right? Because everybody wants the 23rd Psalm. You want to buy Genesis 1 or Isaiah 53 or any of the, the well-known and well-loved passages of the Old Testament, the price on those goes way up. Less uh, interesting passages to people are typically cheaper. And so this became what I wanted to collect, and so I bought one. even framed it myself. This is mine. Okay, I'll go around. There's not really that much to see. You can see it's kind of brown. This is on deer skin. It's about 400 years old or so uh, from Syria, if I remember correctly. And um, I didn't pay much for it at the time because it was a passage of scripture that nobody wanted. And so it was very, very cheap at the time. But when I saw it, I was super excited. This particular column that I purchased contains the final two-thirds of Genesis 14, along with about the first eight or nine verses of Genesis 15. Now, you might be thinking, where is this going? We're here in Galatians chapter 3, right? And in the first five verses of Galatians 3, Paul has opened his argument to the believers there, specifically with a series of questions about their experience of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to remember that his focus here is not on the superiority of experience. It is not on even the superiority of the Spirit. 
Really, the focus of all of the questions is on the superiority of faith over the Old Testament law. The, the, the law, as long as they were following that and observing that, it never, it never did any of the things that faith did. They never received the Spirit. They never saw miracles worked in their midst. But when they turn in faith to Christ, all of a sudden, visible, tangible things begin to occur. And so clearly, Paul's point, faith is superior to the law, and they should not return to the law. And so now, to advance his argument beyond that of their own experience, here at the end of this set of questions, he turns to a concrete Old Testament example, the example of none other than Abraham. As you can see here in our text in verse 6, he quotes a passage of Scripture. And does anybody now want to go out on a limb and guess from what Old Testament passage does this particular quotation come? Genesis 15, to be specific, yes, comes right about, uh, right about here, if you wanted to know specifically where it is. And believe me, that took a long time to figure out because I'm not good at Hebrew. Anyway, uh, and this is why I wanted that strip, that particular one, because in my opinion, and I would say in Paul's as well, this passage in Genesis 15 is one of the absolute most important passages in all of the Old Testament. It is quoted numerous times in the New Testament, and in, and in order to understand what Paul is doing with it here in the book of Galatians and why it is so important to this particular argument, we need to make sure we understand it in Genesis 15 first. And so we're going to take a few minutes today to understand what's going on in Genesis 15 so that we can come back then at the end to Galatians 3 and see what Paul is doing there. So let's go to Genesis 15.1. You can just follow behind me unless you want to turn in your, in your own text. But in Genesis 15.1, we read, after these things, okay, so stop. What, what things is Paul referring to here? Well, the context is what I'm referring to. Uh, well, remember, we meet Abraham for the first time, really, in Genesis chapter 12. His name is mentioned at the very end of 11, but in reality, we really get into talking about him in Genesis 12. At that time, his name is not Abraham. What is his name? Do you remember? Abram, very good. He's living in a city called Ur of the Chaldees, but he leaves there and he travels with his father and his nephew Lot to the land of Haran or Haran. And it's there that God first calls Abram, saying to him in chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is quite a promise, is it not? Now, I asked a question to our teens last night. We had a, a teen event. So teens, if you're in here, you are not allowed to help the adults. We're going to see how smart they are. My question to you is, why did God make such an amazing promise to Abraham? I mean, why him? Was it because he was so righteous or so godly or such a devout follower of Yahweh anyway? And the answer to all of those is none of the above. I cannot give you from Scripture any reason why God chose Abram out of all the people of the earth, but he did. It is purely the sovereign and gracious choice of God to do so, and, and so this is what we are left with. Well, all right, Abram hears this. He and Lot 
leave Haran and travel down to Canaan. They spend a little bit of time in Egypt. Stuff happens there. Finally, they come back to the land. And in chapter 13, Abram and Lot end up having to separate because they've grown so wealthy. They've got so much livestock. They both can't be in the same area. You probably remember this, and so they do. And at the end of chapter 13, God reiterates his promise to Abraham. This is now, follow, the second time God has spoken to him. He says to him in chapter 13, verse 14, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, again, wow, right? He's, he's taking that promise that he first gave him at the beginning of 12, and he's sort of expanding on it. It's nothing really new. It's expanding on the idea. So if I put them together, the 12 and 13 promise. Here's what you get. Uh, Abram's going to be a great nation. He's going to have land all around him, more offspring than the dust of the earth. His name is going to be great so that he'll be a blessing. And not just his family will be blessed, but every family on earth will be blessed through him. Okay, really, truly is amazing. Chapter 14, war breaks out between kings there in the land. And in the process of the war, Lot, his family, all of his possessions are taken as spoils of war. Remember this? And so Abram leads a commando force of 318 trained men in a nighttime ambush. In doing so, he frees Lot and his family, frees all the other captives too, recaptures all of the possessions that have been taken. On his way back, he runs into a priest of the Most High God named Melchizedek. That's an amazing story that we don't have time for today. And then finally, the kings of the land whose stuff and people he had saved come, and they try to reward Abram. Here, take some of the stuff as spoils of war. And he says, no, thank you. I don't want anything from you. And this is what leads us into chapter 15. So after these things, that whole story there that I just told you, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And, and please keep in mind, this is now number three. Third time God has spoken to him. You now know all the promises of the first two times he, he appears. God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I think that's a reference back to him refusing the reward at the end of chapter 14. But you see that Abram isn't very concerned about this. He says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, what good would a reward do me? Sure, you can give it to me, but who am I going to pass it on to? Who in my family is going to benefit from whatever reward you provide? Give me wealth, give me riches, give me, what are you going to give me? I can't I have no one else to, to turn it over to. Sarah and I are childless. This Eleazar of Damascus, a servant of mine, he is going to inherit all of my wealth. And so he continues, Abraham says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now it's getting a little more, little more personal, and he's really targeting God in this comment. God, your promises are in question. You have given me nothing. Nothing. You said you, you know, my offspring would be so many that they would be like the dust of the ground, uncountable. Right now, I can count them on less than one hand. Zero, right? I got nothing. 
And even if you were to keep all of the other promises that you've made to me, who's going to benefit? Not my family. Eleazar's family, maybe, but, but not mine. And so Abram's struggle here at this point is with this one specific promise that God has made to him uh, over time. And it's kind of a big point because if this one isn't fulfilled, none of the other ones are really going to help him either. And so here God responds, Behold, word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, I want you to notice here, we're going to stop. You need to, to, to notice what God does and does not do at this particular moment in responding to Abram's concern. What God does do is he gives Abram a very specific response to his very specific concern. Abram is concerned about the fact that he and Sarah were childless. And so God assures him here in verse 4 that he and Sarah will indeed have a son. But hopefully, as you know, if you know anything at all about Abraham and Sarah, this is no small comment on his part, as both Abram and Sarah are elderly at this point. They are past the, the, the childbearing years. Um, one of our family's favorite movies is a movie called Parental Guidance. It has Billy Crystal and Bette Midler in it, and they are grandparents. They are the other grandparents, meaning the, the not fun grandparents. When you look at the mantle, like there's all the pictures of grandma and grandpa, but then there's their picture way over there in the back, right? So they get this weekend to go and spend with their three grandchildren. And at first, you know, all kinds of terrible things happen. It's very funny. But finally, near the end, they've had a wonderful day, right? It's perfect. And Billy Crystal and Bette Midler are just kind of reflecting on it. And Bette Midler says, why, why did we have only one? And Billy Crystal looks back and goes, it's not too late. And she goes, oh, it's too late. Um, oh, it's too late for Abram and Sarah here. They're past that point. But God is assuring him here that, that he and Sarah will have their very own son, and this son will be their heir, not a servant. And then, to make it even bigger, God repeats the dust promise in a different way. This time it's with stars. If you can count the stars, it's how many offspring you're going to have. My promise isn't going to just stop with your son, Abram. It's going to continue. You're going to have offspring like you wouldn't believe so many. They will never be counted. All of this being said, to a childless man who left his father's house, his home country, based on the promise of God that certain things would be true, but who, up to this point, has seen none of it. None of it. And so he's doubting, or seems to be doubting, or at least struggling to reconcile how these promises of God will, will work with his present circumstances. And so God gives him this very specific assurance. This is what God does. But I also want you to notice, and maybe this is a little random, but stick with me for a second. Notice what God doesn't do. For example, there's no uh, like medical explanation given as to how two people past the childbearing years are going to be able to have children. Well, see, it's going to work like this. There's no like vision given to him of, of like him holding Isaac or seeing his many offspring years down the road. He's not whisked away into the future so that he can see what will come from all of these things that God has said. All that Abram has at this moment are the promises of God. Just words. And absolutely 
nothing else. Now, notice verse 6. And he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. The words of God are enough for Abram, and he believes. He has faith. He doesn't see it. I mean, that kind of proof isn't even offered to him. He doesn't see it. He can't explain it. The only proof that Abram is offered is the proof of God himself. Either God is telling the truth or he is not. Either God is faithful and honest and able to do what he has said or he's not. Either God can miraculously provide them with a child or he cannot. But I want you to recognize that it all depends on God. There is nothing at this point that Abram can do except believe and trust based on nothing. Nothing but the character of God himself. And he does. He believes the Lord. He trusts Yahweh. And when God sees Abram's trust, not in himself, not in his circumstances, not in his abilities, but when he sees Abram trust and believe against all of those things, God counts that kind of faith as righteousness. Now, we have a word we learned a few weeks ago. He justifies Abraham. This is why I tend to call this passage Abraham's salvation story. Now, I don't know if this is actually the moment that Abram becomes a believer in Yah. I, I can't say when he became a child of God, but I can say this much. If he wasn't before, he is now. All right, I can say that with certainty. Now, three more very quick points of context, and I'll be done. Okay? First, as you keep reading through the rest of Genesis 15, the rest of the chapter tells us about the remainder of their conversation that day between Abram and God. Abram's next concern is about the promise of land. And so God uh, puts Abram through a little covenant ceremony. And in the ceremony, what Abram's supposed to do, he's supposed to take some animals and cut them in half, boom, chop them right down the middle and separate them out in the ground. And we hear that and we're like, that's weird, that's gross. But, but understand that in Abram's day, in ancient Near Eastern culture, this would have been a very common way of performing this kind of ceremony. When two people were going to enter into a covenant with one another, they would take animals, cut them in half, divide them, make like a little walkway in between, and they would either stand in that walkway or walk through that walkway and rehearse the promises that they were making in the covenant. And the idea of this, the purpose of the, the bisected animals, was so that if either party were to break its side of the covenant, this is what should happen to them. They should be torn asunder, divided in two, killed, if they were to ever violate the words of the covenant that were given. Well, the weird thing about this particular ceremony that occurs here in Genesis 15 is that only one party goes between the animals, and that's God. God goes in between them, and he makes his promises to Abram. In other words, indicating that, hey, if I do not stay faithful to what I have said, if I do not fulfill the promises that I have made to you this day, may I be torn in sunder like the animals in front of you here. I mean, can God do that? No. He, he's just emphasizing to Abram how certain this promise is. God is committing himself via this covenant to Abram. It's just a, another reminder of God's commitment and faithfulness to Abram. Second, 
I've told you the story of Abram now up to, to Genesis 15, so you know everything from 12 to 15 in one little quick synopsis. Did I mention anything about the issue of circumcision? No. Did I leave it out? No. Circumcision isn't introduced as a sign of the covenant until Genesis 17. That's when Abram's name is changed to Abraham. And this is kind of important because it shows us that Abram's faith precedes circumcision. His circumcision doesn't come before his faith. No, no, no. Faith comes before circumcision, a point that will be of some value in the letter to the Galatians. Third, I asked you this a few weeks ago, and I will remind you now of the answer. Who comes first, Abraham or Moses? And the answer was Abraham. Abraham comes about 400 years before Moses. And this matters, again, for Galatians, because the law comes through who? Moses. Well, wait a minute. Abraham, then, is not under the law. He's not under any law. Way, way not under any law. For goodness sake, at the beginning of Genesis 15, he can't even believe he's going to have a son, much less a great, 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 whatever grandson named Moses who's going to bring them the law. His mind's not even there. Right now, he's thinking Eleazar of Damascus is going to be his heir. So no, he, again, this is going to matter. It's going to matter tremendously for the Galatians. And it's these final two points of context then that are why Paul turns to Abraham as a means of argumentation with the Galatians. Hey, hey, Galatians, let me ask you this question. Um, what did you get from keeping the law? Did you get the spirit? Oh, wait, no, that was faith. Sorry. Uh, okay, wait a minute. Did you get to see all these amazing miracles and all and the things that have happened in your midst because of the law? No, wait, that was faith too. Sorry. Oh, you know, on second thought, hey, you want to know some another place where the law came, or excuse me, faith came before the law and proved itself to be better? It was, it was Abraham too. I remember now. I know who I was thinking of. It was Abraham. Because even Abraham, the ultimate Jew, the father of the nation, is declared righteous by faith, not by any law. Folks, this is a powerful argument, especially in a Jewish context, and it is an important reminder for us as well. In Romans 4, for example, Paul uses this same exact passage. I tell you, it's used multiple times. So, but in Romans 4, it's the biggest treatment of it. I think the entire chapter is given over to Paul trying to talk about Genesis 15, specifically verse 6. And it's at the very end of Romans 4, verses 23 to 25. This is how Paul ends that discussion. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. It's good. I'm glad it's for Abraham. Glad it's true. But understand, it's not just for Abraham. Those words were also written for us because it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I mean, just think back through Abraham's story. Why was he chosen in Genesis 12? Because he was so righteous, so godly, such a great follower of Yahweh. No, none of the above. He was chosen as an act of God's sovereign grace, purely, purely based on God's purposes. Was Abraham justified by God because in Genesis 15 he had kept the law or done some great thing? Or No, no, he's justified simply because he believed. Well, that faith that he had, did, 
Did it have some kind of backing or proof, something tangible that he could grab onto, point to, look at? No, he had nothing but words. Nothing at all but words, words from God. And his choice was very simply, believe them or don't. Just that simple. Abraham serves as a reminder to us that our God has always worked the same way. You don't see God work one way in the Old Testament, work in a different way in the New Testament. No, 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 no. No, he chooses and calls based on his own purpose and will, not based on anything in man. And he justifies only by grace through faith in his word. It hasn't changed. <laughs> not since Abraham. Nothing's changed at all. God wants us to trust him, but, but not just in salvation. We, I think, you know, that's preaching to the choir, right? You guys get that. He wants us to trust him, though, in all things. And I, I, I've become about halfway convinced, at least, if not a little more, that, that this is why sometimes, if not more often than sometimes, God seemingly remains silent when we cry out to him and pray to him for all types of things. Because normally what I want in those moments is I want to see an answer now. It's what I want. Maybe it's not what you want, but it's what I want. I want to see an answer now. I want to, I want to experience. I want to know. I want to feel. I want something. And sometimes we get that. It happens. And when it does, praise God, there's a place for that, a right place for that. But a lot of times, at least in my own life, I feel like we don't see that. And we cry out to God over and over and over again, and nothing changes and nothing happens. And what exactly are you left with at that moment? Well, you're left with the reality of the question of whether or not you truly trust God himself. Himself. Not his answers. Not you getting what you wanted out of a scenario. Not even a good thing, and I mean it, a legitimately good thing that may be right to pray for. Sometimes you don't even get that, and what are we left with then? We're left with, what, with the question of whether or not we trust God himself, that he hears us, that he knows what is best for us, and that he is doing it in his own way and time. And I've come to see that as, as like one example of what C.S. Lewis called the severe mercy of God, when he used that phrase, the severe mercy of God, he was talking about things that God does in our lives or allows in our lives that are painful, that we would never choose for ourselves, that we might not want in a million years, but that are ultimately for our good. And if I could see every answer to prayer that I prayed, if every time I prayed, God instantly gave me what I wanted, what, what real trust would I have to have? If every time I went into my office in the morning, if, if God just appeared to me visibly right in front of me and I could see him and, and talk with him face to face, what, what real trust would I need? I would need none. And I don't think that's exactly what God wants us to have. At least not all the time. God wants us to trust him, his word. Yes, in salvation, but not just that. He wants us to trust him in all of life. And so... You know, like Abraham and so many other saints who have gone before us, you know, we need to be able to see with eyes of faith the promises of God from afar. I love that passage in Hebrews 11, where after talking about all of these people who are just, right, they're the, the heroes of faith. What does he say? I think it's like verse 13 or so. 
He says, all of these died having not received the promises. That's encouraging, huh? <laughs> they died having not received the promises. Abraham dies and he owns a cave. He doesn't have the land of Canaan. He has a cave. And he's got a son and he's got a couple of grandkids and you can count those. He died. He didn't receive the promise. But, he, but the writer of Hebrews says, they, like strangers and exiles, could see them from afar. And because of that, they were looking off to a better country whose builder and maker is God. That's the real hope. That's the real inheritance. That's the real promise. And that's where I think sometimes God leaves us. When we pray and we cry out and nothing happens, it's so that we too will look off to that better country where God himself will be our inheritance, our prize, and our joy, and where our faith will finally and truly become sight. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, it is so hard, I, I can't speak for everyone in here, but for me, I can say to live by faith. It is so hard, so much I would love to just see, to see and taste and touch and know that all of these things that we read and talk about and sing about, that they are true. And, but I recognize then that my, my hope then would not be in you and in your faithfulness. It would be in my own senses in my own ability to perceive and understand the things I see, I, I, I ultimately, Lord, in those moments, I'm expressing the desire to have faith in myself, not, not in you. And so it is the severe mercy to, to protect us from that. And please do protect us from this, Lord. May we be a people who truly live by faith. And there will be days where you will show yourself and it will be real and tangible and undeniable, but there will be many others where we, we feel like we're walking around in a dark room uncertain of what's in front of us. It's in that moment that we have to recognize that we are not living for what we can see here, but we are looking off to a far and better country, one that you have made for us. We are merely exiles and strangers here. And even if we die, having not received the promises, so to speak. May we die in faith, sustain us in our faith to rest in you and trust in you and cling to you no matter what. And so Jesus, will you give us this faith and sustain us in this faith? Spirit, will you protect and preserve us in this faith until we finally reach the end? and our faith becomes sight. We see you face to face and are made like you for all eternity. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.